We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. Over the next several weeks, we are going to be studying the chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews. And I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12 with me this morning as we spend some time in this text that's on page 1008 in the Bibles in front of you in the pews. Uh, As this passage opens, we find the, the central exhortation of this text to be this. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run with endurance. This exhortation to endure uh, is found throughout the New Testament. We see it on the lips of Jesus in Mark 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always giving yourselves to the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This idea of being steadfast and immovable implies being faithful to the end of your days, not giving up. When Paul prays for the church in Colossae, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 11, he prays in this way, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. The call to endure exists strongly throughout the New Testament. What endurance actually is, is the capacity to hold out or to bear up in the face of difficulty. It's no surprise that we mostly need endurance then for things that are difficult and hard. We don't typically need endurance for things that are relatively easy, like binge-watching our favorite show or going on a Caribbean vacation, unless you're going with the wrong people. We don't don't generally need endurance for things that are pleasurable or easy and that don't require much effort or cause much resistance. Where we actually need endurance in our lives is in the things that are difficult and challenging. The classic case for Boston, our city is known for this event, is the Boston Marathon. And athletics give us all kinds of examples of the need for endurance. We need endurance for getting a degree. Lots of opportunities for resistance and difficulty along the way. Often we need endurance to go through the next project in our workplace or to care for an ill parent or endurance to complete a residency or a fellowship. Endurance to deal with illness or brokenness in our own body. Endurance to parent children that we love but require much patience and endurance in the process of raising them up in the ways of Jesus. We need endurance for the Christian life. In this exhortation in Hebrews chapter 12, it isn't actually for endurance in your degree or in your workplace. It's not about specifically whatever that challenging or hard situation is in your life right now to get through that particular challenge. Life amidst many lovely things, situations, moments, and relationships along the way is is honestly quite difficult. But this endurance that we're exhorted to in Hebrews chapter 12 and throughout the New Testament is endurance in the Christian life, the Christian way of discipleship. It's about the call that we have upon our lives if we've come to know Jesus and walk with him by faith to bear witness to the life of God to the world 
through our bodies and our minds, our actions and our words. And this is no small calling. In order to do that well, we need to endure because we will certainly encounter resistance and difficulty to bearing that witness along the way. I want you to hear me say that the Christian life is wonderful. It is full of love and joy and peace and purpose and meaning. The kinds of things that most people spend most of their life trying to find but have such difficulty finding. These things are inherent in the Christian life and they are gifts given to us by God and by his grace and we receive them gladly. But also, and none of you really need me to say this, the Christian life is difficult and hard. Think about the language at the end of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, about spiritual warfare and battle that we find there. Put on the full armor of God, stand firm, resist the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world. Paul portrays the Christian life of discipleship as a battle in which we are engaged in a kind of mortal combat. When someone enters into the Christian life, they are baptized. And often at the end of that service, as they've been buried with Christ in the waters of baptism and raised with Christ in this sacrament, we say to them and give them this charge, do not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified and to fight bravely under his banner against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to continue as his faithful soldier and servant to the end of your days. That doesn't sound like an invitation into a relatively easy life, does it? Right at the beginning, right as this life is beginning, at its infancy, we are saying to one of our own, this is going to be a battle and a struggle, and we exhort you to fight bravely with Jesus under his care against these enemies that you are facing. We're inviting them into warfare, and we're doing this in a meaningful way against these enemies that are turned against you in the spiritual realm, that are there to destroy you and to destruct you. You need to fight. You need to fight by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this takes endurance. So the Christian life isn't easy. We encounter struggles and trials. We experience loss and heartache. We're constantly lured by the idols of the age and the counterfeit promises for life that we, fit, that we hear all around us. We face opposition in various ways inside of our own hearts and outside of us as well. We face doubts regularly. God, are you there? And do you really care about me, given all that I'm walking through right now? How often have you asked that question in your life? And I could go on, but for those of you who are followers of Jesus, you don't need any convincing. You know these challenges, you've lived them, and you probably sometimes feel the temptation to give up or to give in. It is just a reality. So we desperately need this exhortation to endure. Be steadfast, immovable, press on to the end. These exhortations would not be necessary if there was no difficulty or challenge in the life of Christian discipleship. But because sometimes the Christian life may be a bit more like trying to swim out into the surf and being crushed by wave after wave and the waves just never stop coming, we desperately need these exhortations to endure. And I'm sure you and I both need them in some way, even today. Paul knows the weariness and challenges of the Christian life. Just read 2 Corinthians 11 to see all that he walked through. And he says this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good. 
For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Let us not grow weary. My heart and longing would be for every one of us here to be able to say what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 as we come near to the end of our lives. He says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And how we long to hear those words from our master when we meet him face to face that he uses in the parable of the faithful stewards, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to endure. Throughout this series, we are going to build off of the exhortation here to run with endurance. We're going to pull out four key elements that are essential for us to be able to endure that are found here in verses 1 and 2. These are being encouraged by those who have gone before us, shedding burdensome weights, accepting our course, and looking to Jesus. And so today, first and briefly, we're going to consider this idea of being encouraged by those who have gone before us. And that brings us then to the opening words of chapter 12. Look with me at the text. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. This invites us back to chapter 11, to this long and detailed account of men and women who have gone before the people to whom the author of Hebrews is writing, and they have endured in the race, to run the race. This is what the author calls the great cloud of witnesses. Now, I love to ride bikes. Wasn't so favorable for me this past year. Uh, but I do love all things biking, and I particularly enjoy the Tour de France. Watching the Tour in July is a kind of annual tradition. And in the Tour, if you watch the race, these elite athletes are climbing up mountain pass after mountain pass. And as they're going up a pass in the Alps or in the Pyrenees, on these narrow little paved roads going up over the top, they're going through a sea of people who are dressed up in all kinds of crazy garb and cheering with, at them, and some of them run alongside of them and pat them on the back. And the whole point is they're urging them forward on this race to endure to the top of the peak. And there's a sense in which we can take this idea of the great cloud of witnesses kind of like that. But there's a big sense in which that illustration is very off-base. And you could use a similar one for rounding the corner onto Boylston Street. I think it's from Hereford, isn't it? Onto Boylston on the marathon. And there's lines of people along both sides of that wide street as you're coming to the end of the race. And people are cheering you on. But the problem with that illustration is this. That most of those people cheering you on in the tour, let's say, uh, have never ridden the Tour de France. They've probably stayed up all night the night before partying on the mountain. And they might be avid fans of cycling, but they've never been in that peloton, sweaty and straining, finding what, what little ounce of energy they have left to get up over that hill. The huge difference with the great cloud of witnesses here, as we read about in chapter 12, verse 1 in Hebrews, is that those who are cheering you on have already run the race with endurance. So when they're cheering you on, they've been here before. They've gone through something like what you're going through. And they've come out the other side. Now, it's not like we hear their audible voices. I don't think that's what the text is implying at all. Rather, what the author of Hebrews is getting at more and more is that we are to be encouraged by the example 
of the lives who have run the race before us with their lives. It's not to be encouraged by their audible voices, by, by, by the fact that they've already run with endurance and run the race well. And to let their example, the example of those who have finished the race before us, come to speak to and encourage and strengthen us so that when we're in the trenches wrestling and struggling, we can take heart and be encouraged by their example and run more faithfully on, the, on our own race. And that's what he's getting at. But he starts to focus in as we look then kind of moving back into chapter 11 on, on one thing about their example. There are many things that we could point to, but one thing is the primary matter. And I want you to see how this develops in the section of text that we're in here. The whole book of Hebrews is about a call to endurance, but the author gets there specifically in chapters 3 and 4. It's strive to enter into the rest of God, and chapter 6 he does as well. But then again at the end of chapter 10, and if you flip back with me to the end of chapter 10, look at verse 36. He says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God you may receive what is promised. And then in verse 39, But we are not of those who shrink back, and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Then verse 1 of chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And then what he'll do for the rest of chapter 11 is he will show us example after example after example of those who have run the race before his audience and have done so by living a life of faith. He's pointing the spotlight on the reality of their faith. You see how that fits together. He exhorts them that we're, we, have, we have faith and preserve our souls. Now faith is this. Now let me show you the lives of those who have lived by faith. And then he goes on to show them Moses, Abraham, Noah, Enoch, Sarah, Jacob, Joseph, and more. All the people that he mentions share this quality, this reality, this attribute of faith in great measure. Faith, defined as the assurance of things hoped for, is what enables them to endure to the end. Here's how one commentator says this. In striking contrast to the man whose values are entirely those of this present world, the Christian is animated by the conviction that it is the very things which are not yet seen, those things which he appropriates by faith, that are real and permanent. The author of Hebrews defines faith as the grasping in the present day of the future realities that are ours by the promise of God and of the invisible God himself in the present in such a way that this grasping guides and directs our decisions in the mundane and everyday, in the trenches and the challenges of daily life. Their lives are animated by, and they're defined by the promises of God and the certainty of those promises coming to a reality one day. I never got to know my grandfather on my mom's side, but he's one of these who's part of the great cloud of witnesses in my own life. He met my grandmother at, they were young, 23, 22, in the early 1940s. And they married in October of 1942. By April of 1943, he had 
a second bout with tuberculosis and was hospitalized from April of 1943 until his death in June of 1944. My mom was born in September of 1943, and he only got to be in her presence physically four or five times. But what he left behind was a giant witness of faith in hundreds of letters that were exchanged between him and his sweet wife, my grandma. And in these letters, we see a picture of a man who understood what the author of Hebrews is writing about here in the life of faith. February 14th, 1944, when he's in the hospital, this is several months after my mom was born, he writes to his wife, Darling, have no fear, for the Lord has said that I, Harold Jennings Bryant, who believe in him, shall never be plucked out of his hand. This is a blessed assurance to know that regardless of how much I'm buffeted about by Satan, I'll be safe. Eleven days later, on my mom's fifth, five-month birthday, he writes, to his wife, I know what a heavy schedule you have. I've wished I could be there to take the responsibility off your shoulders, but long as I will, I can't do a thing about it at present. My greatest contribution to your welfare for the present is to be faithful in prayer for you. More may be accomplished by prayer than by all my physical might were I there. So darling, we must ever keep looking to our Lord and our tasks and burdens will become lighter, not necessarily removed, but certainly lighter. In this time of trial, he clung to the reality of the promises of God and to his identity as a son of God. And as those like my grandfather who do this in the midst of the race that God has set before them cling to these promises, it begins to relativize the value of all of that worldly stuff that we often cling to, doesn't it? comfort, security, autonomy, possessions, opportunity, and even, in my grandfather's case, and is often the case in our lives with physical suffering, even life itself in these bodies. These things that we prize, that are so important, these things that are, are really central to so much of life and are good things, they begin to be relativized when we cling by faith to the promises of God, and we see the worth and value of all that God is for us. In the light of that worth and value, these other things begin to diminish. Now imagine with me for just a moment that you can only clench one of your fists at one, at this, at, at one time. Those who have the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, they have a grasp and a deep grasp and grip upon God and the promises of God and all that is invisible that we cannot see but that we know is true and real, more true and more real than the things that we can see. And they are grasping onto this reality with this hand. The, and as they grasp in this way, the other hand begins to let go as it must. They're not holding anymore so tightly onto those things that so often become the things that we hold onto and that we grasp that inhibit our obedience to and our following of Jesus, our faithfulness, and our endurance. They're beginning to let go. On the flip side, if you start to grasp over here, to grasp those things that the world says are central and important, you will begin to lose your grip over here. 
Again, we only have enough grasping power to grasp one fist at a time. And the idea that the author of Hebrews is getting at in chapter 11 is that these men and women of faith have grasped so deeply God and his promises that their lives are resting in this and their lives and affections are drawn toward God and his promises. So much so that they're beginning to let go of the things that the world cherishes and to hold them loosely. So we see these kinds of examples of them looking forward. Look at verse 10 in chapter 11 about Abraham. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham, as we read in Genesis 12, Abraham lets go of what the world says is important. He lets go of his homestead, his wealth, his income, and he follows God, the God who called him to go to a land that was foreign to him, where he became a wanderer who lived in tents. But it was the land of promise. And so the author of Hebrews says, Abraham is willing to loosen his grip in order to strengthen his grip upon the God who called him into a new place. And so he leaves behind the familiar and embraces the unfamiliar as he clings to God. And he's looking for a different city. Verses 13 through 16 summarize what's going on. The people who do these kinds of things, they make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Verse 16, but they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. So they're not thinking of the land from which they've gone out. They've let go. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. They're seeking something different. Their hearts are set on something different. Their minds are set on something different. Their grasp is holding God and his promises, and they're willing to let go of other things and begin to move. This is what we see depicted as the life of faith in Hebrews 11. My favorite example from this great chapter, Hebrews 11, is Moses. As we read about him, look with me at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Looking to the reward. He was clinging to the reward, clinging to God and his promises, and so he was willing to let go of his grip. Moses had all access to an infinite amount of pleasure and wealth and learning and privilege and status. He was the adopted grandson of the greatest person alive, the, the ruler of the known world. And yet Moses is willing to let go of all of those things, to loosen his grip. Why? Because he considered the reproach of Christ to be spit on with Jesus of greater wealth than all the treasures of the known world. He considered it to be better to share in the reproach of Jesus than to enjoy the lush feasts of those who did not have God. Moses' values by faith had been completely turned upside down and he was looking not at what was right in front of him, at what the world said would make him happy. No, he was looking for the reward. He had caught a glimpse of a better country. He knew he had a better possession in Jesus and in Yahweh, so he grabbed onto that one and he let go of this one. He grasped what he knew was valuable and important and he let go of this one. He sold everything that he had and grabbed onto the pearl of great price. This is what marks the life of faith. And at the end of this chapter, beginning in verse, the middle of verse 35, you get these amazing accounts of these men and women of faith. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And then I love these words. 
of whom the world was not worthy. These unnamed forebears in the life of faith, men and women of faith, men and women who had an assurance of things not seen, of, of things hoped for, and a conviction of things not seen, who had an assurance of God and his reality and presence in the midst of their terrible, difficult challenges and the resistance that they were facing time and time again. Things of value that they were clinging to, God and his promises. And in the midst of that, they found obedience and faithfulness at any cost, as Moses illustrates so well. Why? Because God is always worth it. Because there is nothing of greater value than God himself. So the author of Hebrew writes that being encouraged by those who have already endured is to be encouraged by their life and their example, and particularly in Hebrews, by their faith. To prize God and his promises. We might ask ourselves, in light of this passage, what are we really looking forward to? What do we prize and value? What do we most deeply long for? Those in Hebrews 11, 11 longed for a kingdom that could not be shaken, a city whose foundations weren't built by human hands, but by God himself. And so they grasped him. And they desire him and his rewards, such that whatever difficulties they were facing that in that day, and there are many in our lives even today, they were willing to open-handedly let go of the things of this world. It affected them in such a way as to make choice after choice in the little things and the big things, to choose him and his ways over choosing ourselves. The author here, actually, if we go back to the end of chapter 10, even points out that the people to whom he's writing know this life of faith. Look at verse 34 in Hebrews 10. For you had compassion on those in prison, and here we go, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. You loosened your grip on the things that the world says are valuable, since you knew that you had a better possession and an abiding one. You know, the author is saying, you know what the life of faith is about. You've lived the life of faith. So endure to the end. Run this race with endurance. And to put this in practical terms, let me say it in this way. To run with endurance this life of faith, this clinging to God, it is to forgive the person who has hurt us. To really forgive from the heart. It is to reject the temptation to tell a lie that might secure for us significant gain in the world's eyes and to forego that gain to receive the greater treasure. It is perhaps to reject the idea of the American dream as affluence and early retirement and so on and so forth and to pursue a life of obedience to the very end of our lives in pursuit of Jesus. It is to love children who may be challenging or hard to love, perhaps children who have grown into adulthood and rejected your counsel and care and embrace, but it is to choose to continue to love them in Jesus' name. The only way to make these choices in the little things as well as in the big things is to walk by faith, 
it is to deeply prize God and his promises in such a way that we are influenced by that grasp upon him in the day-to-day -day choices that we make, by that faith, by that deep assurance of things we're hoping for. To love him, to desire him, to trust him, to be assured of him, that is faith. And that is what the great cloud of witnesses encourages in all of us. And this faith comes most, and Hebrews would tell us this as we read the whole, if we were to read the whole book, it comes most by contemplating the amazing love of God for us in his provision in Jesus, our Savior, and in the words of Hebrews, our great high priest, the one who sacrificed himself on our behalf once for all, the one who was raised from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, where he lives as our faithful and merciful high priest to always make intercession for you and for me as we continue to run the race. It is the provision of God in Jesus that most animates and enlivens our faith. So if you're here this morning struggling with the sense of my faith feels so old and dry and tired, all I can say as a remedy is look to Jesus, as the author of Hebrews will say in verse 2 of our text, and we'll get to in a few weeks. It's look to Jesus and look at what you see in him. We've just come out of the season of Christmas where we remember the great gift that God has given us in the birth of his son. Look to what God has given you. Look to the expression an emblem of his love that Jesus' incarnation actually is, and then his crucifixion and resurrection. And let your gaze upon him be what fuels and warms the fires of your heart in love for him, such that you cling more tightly and deeply to God and his promises, and you're willing to be looser in your gra grasp upon the things of this world. Look to Jesus. So be encouraged by this great cloud of witnesses who are cheering you on through their own examples and think in your own life about what you might be grasping so hard that you're losing your grip upon God's promises. And be encouraged to run this race with endurance, to fight the good fight, to receive that commendation, well done, good and faithful servant, at the end of your days. Whatever it is you're fighting, whatever it is you're struggling with, whatever it is that is calling forth endurance in your Christian witness today, whatever it is that's calling forth this kind of endurance, the treasures of Jesus are enough reward. They are greater than anything else. So let that grasp upon those treasures dive you deeper into faithful obedience to choose love, to choose humility, to choose forgiveness. That is endurance. It also is being sawn in two, but I'm guessing most of you aren't facing that trial, as it says at the end of Hebrews 11. But it's mostly as we live out this life in these little, and at times big, choices in the day-to-day -to, -day to choose obedience to our King, to endure faithfully to the end. And again, these choices are enabled by the faith that grasps tightly to God and His promises the God who loves you more than you could ever imagine. Father, we thank you for the gift of those who have gone before us in this race of faith. And we pray, Lord, that you would even call to mind this week those in our own lives that we remember who have finished the race and done so with great endurance, bearing witness to you to the end of their days. We thank you for their example. We pray that you would encourage us again this morning 
that you would drive us more deeply into this life of faith. Lord, that you would breathe life upon us again and afresh. How we long to endure, O God. How we need your encouragement to do so. Send your spirit upon us and deepen our faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.